Now, study of early modern literature and culture centres on London for a whole set of obvious reasons. You've got the Royal Court, the Inns of Court, public theatre, Parliament, the city, the news, the printers, all in London. So it's very easy to assume that whatever we might call culture in the early modern period starts from London as a centre and sort of seeps out to everywhere else. Additionally, of course, by the 1580s, London English is the master dialect, as George Putnam says in The Art of English Poesy. Uh, despite the rival merits of other forms of English, ye shall therefore take the usual speech of the court and that of London and the shires lying about London to within 40 miles and not much above. This serves, of course, to intensify the impression that British culture occurred entirely within the line now traced by the M25. <laughs> However, what I want to argue now is that there were significant communities of British readers, indeed British writers, who were indifferent to the printed literature of London and chose reading matter from other sources. So it's necessary to think in terms of early modern British cultures in the plural, and indeed to question the whole idea of centre and periphery. London is never the whole story. To take an example with an enormous impact on British culture, you need look, look no further than Miles Coverdale and William Tyndall. Henry VIII, of course, could control dissenting voices in England with considerable success, but he could not prevent the work of Bible translators like Coverdale and Tyndall, who were printing British Bibles abroad. An estimated 16,000 illegal English-language Bibles had reached England by 1536, despite determined attempts by Henry to intercept them. They were also, of course, imported into Scotland. Additionally, there's the obvious fact that there were English writers using print politically to manipulate their image on the continent, few more obviously than Henry VIII himself. His refutation of Luther's view of the sacraments achieved a wide distribution, published, as you can see, in Rome, in Mainz, in Strasbourg, in Antwerp and Cologne, and rather later in Paris. Um, and, of course, this earned him the title of Defender of the Faith, somewhat ironically. Elizabeth made some cautious use of print, and, of course, James VI is massively visible abroad. There's about... I've counted 152 items by James V printed variously in European cities. Now, the M25 version of British culture makes it particularly hard to understand the cultural history of Scotland. <coughs> the small and primitive print culture of that nation reinforces the myth of London's complete primacy by giving the impression that the Scots aren't doing anything at all. There is always a temptation to think of Scottish culture as rather like English, but smaller, which it isn't. So, if you look at literature published in either English or Scots in Scotland, there are only 154 works which might qualify under that title. Of these, just over a third are multiple publications by a mere seven authors, one of whom is the king. Fatule Princeps, of course, is Lindsay, 24 editions, then 10 from James, 10 from William Drummond, um, and then sort of a handful of others by Henryson, Lady Kouros, um, and the 
considerably ancient authors, John Barber and Henry the Minstrel. And if you look at um, English literature, there are only four items. All of this suggests extremely conservative literary tastes in Scotland. But the culture of early modern Scotland only becomes comprehensible when you realise that educated men normally took at least one degree on the continent, and they read and wrote Latin as easily, or indeed more easily, than either English or Scots. They travelled widely, they published extensively on the continent. So, if you compare the two most famous 16th century writers of the two nations to their contemporaries, Philip Sidney and George Buchanan, this is what you find. Sidney is certainly an international presence, due in part, I think, to his hero's death at Zutphen in the Netherlands. But there are French, German, Dutch and Italian versions of the Arcadia, 20 of them in all, most of them actually printed in Holland in a variety of languages. But there is no author, either in Latin or the vernacular from England, who approaches Buchanan in international standing. Plays, poems, history, political writing, grammars, all in Latin, um, are all repeatedly issued in Latin, in both the Protestant and the Catholic world, and there are also translations, particularly of his plays, into German, Dutch, French, Italian and Hungarian. I've counted a total of 186 editions before 1700, and according to Tournebus, um, there is no man in France who has anything of education or breeding, but is acquainted with George Buchanan. Tournebus writing in the 16th century. Um, plenty of other Scoto-Latin poets are admired and commented on by contemporaries. But uh, I'm particularly interested by a remark the distinguished Latin poet Arthur Johnson made comparing Drummond, who wrote in English, with Buchanan, who wrote in Latin. Buchanan, he says, sought praise for Latin verse and rejected his native metres with a harsh blast. Though Drummond would be able to conquer Buchanan with his Latin muses, he prefers to speak with a native mouth. So which is greater? To the one, Scotland offers the first place, but the other, Bard, is scarcely second amongst the Latins. Now, I don't think it's hard to see which Johnson thinks is more significant, being famous in your old kale yard or being famous all over the continent. But by contrast with writers such as Buchanan, England invested far more heavily in its vernacular literature. And the result of that is that English writers tend to have a purely local reputation. As Florio says, English is a language that will do you good in England, but passed over, it's worth nothing. <laughs> so, Scottish Latin is a much bigger and much more complicated story than writing in Scots. So, if you look at polite literature, I mean, i.e. not legal texts and all the school texts and all the kinds of things that are usually published in Latin, there's 134 published in Scotland itself, which compares very well with the 154 published in Scots or English, 
plus 166 published in France, 245 elsewhere in Europe, 59 published in England, total of 604, which is four times as many works of polite literature in Latin as are published in the vernacular. In other words, Scots are looking in a totally different direction from the English. The major early modern Scottish writers are building international reputations in Latin. They are not forging a national literature. So if you look at John Barclay, for instance, um, who considered himself a Scot, bounced around Europe and died in Rome in 1621, having never set foot in Scotland, his Argenus was massive. There's at least 40 Latin editions before 1700. French, English, Italian, Spanish, German, Dutch, Polish, Greek, and even Icelandic translations, um, running up to a total of 80 or more editions. Buchanan and um, Barclay are two of the three most popular writers of the entire early modern period. The third, for the third Briton is Welsh and that's John Owen. Um, kind of interesting character. Um, Anthony R. Wood noticed that he was particularly popular with foreigners. The Latin works greedily bought and taken into the hands of all ingenious scholars. He's often misogynist, often obscene, and verbally dexterous. Um, the last of these poems, I, I, I think, is, is genuinely quite funny. Um, a unfortunate young woman afflicted with green sickness, and the doctors advise her to take my, um, minuta mentha, a little bit of mint. The word which is hovering and not uttered in that line, of course, is mentula, which, if you don't know, is the Latin word for a penis. So um, she decides she would rather die a virgin of green sickness than live in sin, since the wages of sin are death. It's a, I mean, it's, it's, you've got to say it's ingenious. <laughs> anyway, um, leaving John Owen to one side, um, again, huge amount of Latin circulation, at least 31 editions for 1700. Translations, particularly, the Germans seem to particularly like him, though he's also translated into Spanish which indicates, incidentally, that he was read in the Catholic world as well as the Protestant one. Now I want to look at religion and print. The perception that some groups of individuals who were born and resident in Britain might receive essential cultural formation from somewhere other than London um, explains the formation of several varieties of religious dissidents, which I will start with the Catholics, as well as the majority of literate Scots, Welsh and Irish. Now, several English Catholics make a massive impact internationally. There is, of course, Thomas More, whose epigrams fly over all Europe, according to Sir John Harrington. So, multiple editions of More's works, particularly the Utopia, um, and, of course, Lives of hagiographies, um, accounts of Thomas More, again published all over the place, Cologne, Dowie, Paris and Graz. And additionally, on the continent, um, Moore and his fellow martyr John Fisher is also much read, 
workers left. Um, it's interesting how early continental writers pick up on Moore's death. Um, the German language um, uh, account of the life and death of um, the great Chancellor of England is probably the earliest, mm. Nuremberg, 1535. But there's, there's a Latin version of this horrid news printed in the same year, the year of Moore's execution. And three different responses to Moore's death in the year after, including a heroic poem by Janus Secundus, the noted um, Dutch humanist. So, moving on to the reign of Elizabeth, Edmund Campion is similarly both a martyr and an international bestseller. His Rationes Decem, 42 editions before 1640, Czech, Dutch and Flemish, French, German, Hungarian and Polish translations. So, this basic issue of whether there's more than one stream in the British Isles, I think, affects how we understand patterns of book production and also patterns of book buying and reading amongst differently acculturated groups. And these, of course, are interconnected issues. What people choose to read affects what they decide to write, and also how they choose to disseminate their work once it has been written. So let us take a look at recusant readers. They're catered to by a sizable number of recusant printers active on the continent. John Fowler in Antwerp, John Hyam in Dowie and St. Omer's, Lawrence Kellen, also in Dowie, Robert Parsons, who operates a series of presses, mostly in Rouen, Richard Verstegen um, in Antwerp. And the output of these men is reinforced by all the books printed by continental printing houses such as Balthazar Belair in uh, Dowie um, in the Catholic countries, which additionally produce many books by and for British Catholic readers. Now, if we look at William Blundell of Little Crosby, described in an otherwise very able article about this man as a struggling minor gentleman who was both regionally, he lived in rural Lancashire, and religiously, he was a firm recusant, outside the mainstream. But the question you have to ask when faced with Richard Blundell is, what the heck is the mainstream? These, he wrote an essay on the discovery of Anglo-Saxon coin hoard on his land in the year 1610. And in this, he draws on or mentions a whole variety of books. Of these, only three, Camden's Britannia, Fox's Acts and Monuments, and John Stowe's Annals, are printed in London. Most of what he sees as authoritative, a status which he certainly does not accord to either Fox or Camden, are published outside England. They're authors of Catholic, of course, uh, by no means all of them English. On the basis of what he's reading and the way he responds to it and treats it, there's a very real case for saying that his sense of history, how he arrives at it, and the writers he values suggest he is fully functional within a completely different mainstream. His outlook is not so much provincial as supranational. His centre is not London, it is so to say Rome. And Blundell is a very long way from being the only recusant whose library consists primarily of books printed outside England, 
and whose habits of thought are formed without reference to intellectual developments in London. The arrow points to Little Crosby, um, which is actually on this map, though it's a tiny place. Um, according to a recusant priest who was successfully turned by the English authorities, visiting priests have many times brought books from beyond the seas to his home in Little Crosby. And you can see how it's less than three miles from the Irish Sea. This man had no trouble whatsoever in getting books from the continent. Now, if we look at books seized from recusants' homes, um, Sir Thomas Tresham's book was seized from his house in Hoxton in London. Uh, a Reams New Testament, a primer, um, that is to say uh, a book of ours, um, Louis de Granada, a very, very popular work amongst recusants, published in Paris, Laurence Vaux's Catechism, um, goodness knows where that was published, probably by one of the secret presses, um, but or by Robert Parsons abroad. Um, Robert Parsons' Christian Directory, published by Parsons himself in Rouen, Louis de Granada again. Thomas Wilford, another recusant, his books seized, um, Dowie, the Parsons on the English Persecution, which was severely printed in Rome, Bologna and Ingolstadt. Farinas, published in Antwerp, Catechism, published in Rome. This is sort of the basic stuff that tends to turn up when recusant books are seized. Bibles, prayer books, aids to prayer, catechism, maybe a bit of controversy. Catholics needed books. Much of English recusant <coughs> literature is not polemical at all. It's books of lay spirituality and devotion, like Louis de Granada, written to sustain faith amongst Catholics who have little or no access to the services of a priest. Most of the books which sustained recusant's religion were written, translated or edited by exiles. They were published abroad and they were brought into England by devious means. This is a list of confiscated books from Lansdowne Manuscript 33, um, 50 copies of Luis de Granada, 150 Jesus Psalters, um, and a whole lot of books of ours, manuals of prayers. Um, all of these are published in Rouen, Antwerp, Dowie, Reims, such like places. Okay, so if Catholics are getting all of their mental pabulum from abroad, what about Protestants? It's sometimes forgotten that Puritans are also forced into exile, and they were not always able to publish their writings in England, particularly between 1600 and the 1640s. Thomas Cartwright's confutation of the remists, translation, glosses and annotations on the New Testament was stopped at the press by Archbishop Whitgift in 1586. It was eventually printed in Leyden in 1618. So, like the Catholics, the dissenting Protestants also maintained printing houses abroad, notably in the Netherlands, William Brewster in Leyden, John Cann also in Leyden, closely connected with the separatist English church, Giles Thorpe in Amsterdam, closely connected with the separatist church um, of Henry Ainsworth, George Waters in Dordrecht, printer and deacon, James Moxon in Rotterdam, printing again in and for the English church. And what they're putting out is Bibles, books of piety, apologetics, doctrine, millenarianism, and quite a lot on Scottish affairs. 
So, take William Ames. He was born in Ipswich, deprived of his ministry for being too Puritan and retired to the Netherlands. He becomes professor at Franeker in 1622. And his work is known all over Europe. There's 104 editions, mostly in Dutch or in Latin, published um, in Holland. And he's also enormously popular in the developing culture of Puritan America, which is where his, most of his children set. Um, Louis Bailey's practice of piety. This is extraordinary. It is absolutely embedded in international Protestant print culture. It's translated into 12 different languages, Algonquin, Czech, Danish, Dutch, English, French, German, Hungarian, Polish, Romansh, Swedish and Welsh. Actually, English is the original language, so to sort of scrub that one. It's interestingly never translated into Latin. Uh, Louis Bailey is a teacher of simple folk. And Johann Janssen van Westberger of Amsterdam claimed he was printing 10,000 copies of the practice of piety at a time. There are absolutely countless editions of this thing. Um, 58 Dutch editions, I've found there's 50 plus German editions, and as you can see for yourself, it gets all over the place. It's even published in Romansh, um, which is Swedish German, if you're not familiar with that, it's a curious tongue. Um, the Quakers also have an explicitly transnational mission. So, George Fox's uh, missions to the world is expedited by printers in the Netherlands. Um, his work published in London and uh, disseminated by the sort of underground Quaker presses is very, very promptly translated into Dutch. Um, it's also printed in Holland in other languages, in German, French and Polish. So, um, it's worth noting that dissenting Protestant readers, as well as writers, might well look beyond England for their reading matter. So the Congregationalist theologian John Owen's extremely learned Theologuna Panto Dapper, which is first published in 1661 and incidentally reissued in both um, the Netherlands and Germany, draws on a wide variety of Greek and Latin theologians, philosophers and historians. His writings, of course, are edited and printed in the great Protestant strongholds of Basel, Geneva, Zurich and Leiden. Books from the Catholic world, printed in counter-reformation centres like Rome, Paris and Antwerp, was, were also evidently available to him. But very, very few of the dozens of texts that he cites or refutes in Book 1 of the Theologumina are printed in England. So I found eight of which only two are in English. Um, clearly his principal source of reading matter is the Netherlands, closely followed by France, in fact by, by Paris. Um, so somebody like Owen, who is you know very much part of an international Puritan world, is not not sort of prowling round St Paul's churchyard looking for the latest um, in the way of English literature. He is going abroad, probably via the Frankfurt Book Fair catalogue. Now, other people, of course, who make lavish use of foreign presses are the exiles. 
Let's look at some English royalists. Kenelm Digby, the Duke of Newcastle and Thomas Hobbes. And of course, to the king himself, the famous icon Basiliki, um, portraiture of his sacred majesty. Um, curiously, despite being Calvinists, the Dutch were absolutely horrified by the execution of Charles I, and there is an enormous out, outpouring of Dutch sympathy for the royalist cause uh, and the martyred king. The result, inevitably, of course, is, is that there's any number of editions of Icon Basidiki um, in English, in Latin, in French, and in Dutch. There, are, as well as sort of you know eg the exiled book, so to say, Icon Basilica, there are also plenty of exiled royalists, who, as, as one of their their number pointed out, banished men find little business beside books. Um, that's uh, as James Howell who said who said that. Um, well, they you know they couldn't get a job. They're basically sort of sitting around complaining we was robbed, and uh, um, they are. Um, those are the more sort of literarily inclined amongst them tended to take up writing both both to publicise their cause and defend it and, and out of sheer boredom. Um, so you get this kind of thing. Um, William Cavendish, the Duke of Newcastle, writing a play, The Country Captain, um, George Lauder sort of writing agitprop, William Lauder, uh, William Lower, sorry, translating from Kinault, Charles Cotterell, translating from Le Calprined. Um Some of this stuff's printed abroad, some of it's later printed um, in London. Kenan Digby um, is a far more significant figure on the continent than he is at home. And the mention of Digby uh, also is a reminder that there is such a thing as an international world of scientific writing in which both um, English and Scottish writers have a considerable part to play. But uh, Digby, as a scientific writer, um, is read very, very widely across Europe. Um, so his work on the powder of sympathy, um, there's uh, two, three, four, five editions of it um, in French, and there are also Latin, Dutch, and German versions. His discourse on plants, again, is, is issued in, in Latin um, in three separate editions, and his choice and experimented receipts, again, sort of achieves very, very wide circulations. Hobbes, too. Um, fundamentally, his thought develops in the context of debate with French philosophers. Um, he went to Paris age 42, and is very clearly a member of the circle of Marin uh, Mersenne. Um, and his work, again, the elements of philosophy, um, le corps politique and Leviathan, these are published in Paris and Amsterdam and Leiden. So, one word which has kept coming up in this entire paper is Holland, the Netherlands. I've kept on referring to printing in the Netherlands, whether I'm talking about the reading matter of 
John Owen or the um, writings of Sir Philip Sidney. This is because the Netherlands is by a very long way the most important partner culture for British writing. So I want to end this by summing up why and how. First of all, there's a massive amount of translation from English to Dutch, some 2,500 um, issues before 1700. And some popular writers are translated. Robert Greene's most frequently reprinted pamphlet is equipped for an upstart courtier, and this also found Dutch and German readers. His romance Pandosto, which gave Shakespeare the plot of Trace Knight, was translated <coughs> into French. Nash's Piers Penniless was a great success in English and translated into Dutch. And the only work of Dunn to find a continental readership is Ignatius, his conclave, the satire, which appears in Latin translation. Um, and uh, also so a particularly successful sermon collection, um, Devotions on Emergent Occasion, which is translated into Dutch. Um, this was the first the work most frequently reprinted in Dunn's lifetime. So I think you said, what all of that tends to add up to, I would suggest, is that there's enough interaction between members of the Dutch and English book trades that Dutch printers could well become aware of an English book that had been a popular success in England and take action accordingly by commissioning a translation. But one item, one fact which becomes apparent when these translations out of English are considered chronologically is that they're almost always first translated from English to Dutch. So Robert Greene's quip from Upstart Courtier, Process Titian Fluelbruck and Lackenbruck, published in Leiden, um, and then translated into German, written in the English language and now translated from Dutch into High German, says the anonymous translator. Uh, the life of Tafiletta, the great conqueror of Barbary, uh, newly translated from English into French, says the French edition, and then translated from the English and French into Dutch, newly translated from the English into French, and now newly translated from the French into Italian. Um, the German edition from the English into French and from there into um, German. Now, I'm pretty sure that the Histoire Veritable was issued in the Netherlands. Um, so this is what Anne Coldiron calls catenary translation. These, these texts are being translated out of English by one of the sizable number of people who read both English and Dutch. Um, and from Dutch, because there are an awful lot more people in Germany who speak Dutch than speak English, it's being translated onwards. Um, many of the translations into German and other languages are made from Dutch versions. Some clearly state as much on the title page. Translations, for instance, by Vincent Merzevoort, the most prolific Dutch translator of English Puritan writings, 
are the source text for five different subsequent Latin and four German translations. Uh, for instance, there's a Latin translation of James VI Demonology, Ex Anglico Quidem Ceremone per Vincentium Mesovotium in Belgicum, Nunc vero e Belgico in Latinum Conversa. Also, as the Tafiletto story reveals, the Netherlands prints enormous numbers of books in French. There's more than 22,000 French imprints printed in the Netherlands before 1700. And this is partly, of course, because printers in France are shackled by state censorship. Um, uh, books are being smuggled from the Netherlands in huge quantities. So Martin Oppitz's French version, uh, 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 German version of Philip Sidney's Arcadia is made out of a literal German translation from French. So one translation is leading to another without recursion to the original text. And similarly, if you look at religious writers such as Bailey and William Perkins, onward translation into languages like Swedish and Polish generally seem to post-date translations into German, which I suggest is that means that they were made after the text in question had achieved significant traction in the German-speaking market. So, where does that leave us? Well, through the early modern period, the authorities are censoring what's printed in England. With everything being printed in London, um, it's easy for the stationers' company to keep a fairly tight control. So dissenting political and religious opinion could and did seek foreign presses. English and Scottish Catholics are forced into exile. Stuart attempts to enforce a unified Protestant church creates groups of embattled Presbyterians, clustering again in continental exile. Politics sends people abroad. This civil war, the restoration, the glorious revolution, all generate exile communities. And many of these people publish. They're frequently anxious to argue the case for their cause on the continent. They also want to support and strengthen sympathisers still at home and to influence public opinion both at home and abroad. So in short, there are significant numbers of readers totally indifferent to the printed literature of London, more interested in Rome or Geneva, and if you understand this, the entire culture of early modern England starts to assume a significantly different shape. Thank you.